and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome to a mid-December show here um, in uh, 2017, and uh, it is indeed our our goal to always make a difference. And um, today we are segueing from crime a bit, but we are capturing a topic that is very important and can kind of fit into the mission in terms of the aftermath of tragedy in that there are many, many people in this world that we all age and unfortunately um, may develop chronic conditions and we need people to take care of us in our old age. And it, it doesn't always turn out like a, a Hallmark show. And um, that is um, kind of in a nutshell what we are going to talk about um, in just a couple of minutes with our return guest and one of uh, our, my very favorite um, guests, Pamela Atwood, um, who is a gerontologist by profession and also a certified dementia practitioner. But before we do, just want to say, um, you know, good help is hard to find these days, but if you need help with social media marketing, it is not so unless you go to imaginepublicity.com and go and um, try to connect with my, my co-pilot, my co-host, Delilah Jones. So if you need help in that way, maybe it's one of your, one of your um, New Year's resolutions, go and check that out. So good morning, Delilah. Well, thank you for the advertisement. That that's great. I appreciate it very much. And um, well, you're yeah, I, this is this is a very important show, and the the information is very important for anyone out there who has aging parents or other or siblings, even or anyone who um, needs care, whether it's a, a terminal disease or or old age or whatever the case might be. Um, Caregivers need a lot of support, and I hope that everyone out there that's listening will uh, take notes, take notes about this, because you never know when you will be put into that situation, and there's really not much of a handbook out there to get you through, but the information that Pamela Atwood brings to us always, always is top-notch. We're so happy to have her back. Yes, absolutely, and I know from from your experience in caregiving, Delilah, you know, can you imagine, and this was not the scenario for you, but can you imagine all of those people out there? There is sort of a, I I wouldn't call it, I don't know, crime element, but we are going to talk to Pam about the fact that, you know, we all grow up in in various households, and not, not every family dynamic is, like I said, a Hallmark card, we all have our issues with certain people. But imagine growing up with parents that maybe um, maybe weren't the best parents. Maybe they um, were neglectful of you. Maybe they were abusive of you. And then all of a sudden, you know, 
life happens and there is nobody else there and you you are in the position of having to care for this person and you weren't treated well. So that is the dynamic that we're uh, we're going to talk to Pam about. So, Pam, without further ado, welcome back to Shattered Lives Radio. Welcome back to our family of radio shows. It's a pleasure to have you on again. Well, thank you, Donna and Delilah, and to all of your listeners. Great to be back. Yes, yes, indeed it is. And I uh, just wanted to um, give people a little frame of reference. Since the last time we talked to you, you you were you were working at a different facility. Just so, just wanted you to be able to share with our Connecticut and and New England listeners um, the the new facility that you are working at and what the plans are, so that people can take note of this. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, I'm very excited because. As we all say, it takes a village to raise a child, and I'm very excited because I have an opportunity as an executive director. I am now the executive director of an assisted living that is being built in my hometown, and I live in this town with my family. My mom and dad still live in town. My sister and her family live in town, and all of the folks who helped raise me and all of my friends whose parents are still in the area, I'm able to bring my expertise in aging and aging care resources to our communities. And for all of my career, I've been working, you know, in the Hartford area, West Hartford area, and now I get to work in my little sleepy bedroom community of Hebron. And I'm so excited that we are going to have this beautiful new facility. It's in a senior living community for uh, independent assisted living and memory care assisted living, and it's called Colebrook Village. Wonderful. And, and how many how many bed facility or capacity will it be? Yeah, it's 113 apartments. Uh, there will be 35 apartments for independent folks, 56 for assisted living, and 22 memory care assisted living studio apartments. Wow, that's that's wonderful. So I imagine you have a, a, a bunch of names names on a list already. <laughs> we do. We do. We're very we do. excited. Wonderful. Well, I, I I hope that people will look into that if they're listening here. And um, there's just nothing but good things to offer in the future once you build a new, new state-of-the-art uh, facility because it, it's so much in need. Um, yes, it is. Yeah. So um, our topic today, you know, when we were kind of brainstorming and I wanted to bring you back, and like, well, you have a wealth of information to offer. And this kind of it kind of um, crosses the – we're at a crossroads here in terms of we deal with a lot of crime, but we also deal with a lot of human stories and tragedy. And this kind of deals with two things in that, you know, elder care has been part and parcel of my former career. And now we're talking about, you know, the dynamic of um, the fact that all families are not alike and not all families mm-hmm. – um, get along or function well, and what happens when our families are broken, but yet we still need care. So that is sort of the the issue that we're we're going to uh, address. So when you you had sent me information, why why don't you uh, let us know about um, what was the actual reason and purpose for this show as as you articulated it? 
Yeah, I think that, you know, when we're talking about victims of crime, we have about 28% of all caregivers in the U.S. are hidden victims. They are people who were abused or neglected as children, 28%. And that is a staggering number to think about. So here we've got people who probably were not um, uh you know, able to report a crime most of the time. They really had to suffer at the hands of their abusers and are now at a point where they have um, a filial responsibility, if you will, to provide some kind of care, even if it's just some decision-making or who's going to be the authority, you know, the, the, the responsible party, if you will, uh, in, in a caregiving situation. And some of them are actual hands-on caregivers and day-to-day caregiving. Mm-hmm. Well, how does this happen in terms of, I mean, there could be a few ways in setting up the scenario. Is it yeah. that maybe mom has a chronic condition, chronic health condition, mm-hmm. that, and maybe they go to a short-term rehab, and then they go home, and maybe there's a, num- a specified number of sessions that they get home home care services, but then, it ends because the insurance only pays for X number of, of sessions, and then they have maybe they have to turn to, to, to family members, or they or they have no insurance at all, and right. you know they're discharged home, or or you know, and and it's only this family member. Maybe it's that one that they did not have a functional relationship with. It are there? Right. Is this how? this occurs or what are the various scenarios in which you find yourself in that situation? There are so many possibilities of how this occurs, all of those ways that you've mentioned. Plus we also have folks who are living in the community who are refusing care because they're, they've always been narcissistic. They've always been control freaks. They've always been whatever. And now we've got the adult child who has his own family who's now in that caregiver role with a reluctant caregiver. Um, and still abusive. I have um, so many scenarios stemming from uh, individuals working in my support groups where we've got people who are caregivers by proxy because there is an actual professional caregiver in the role, but the, the family member is the responsible party. And then we have other folks who are responsible for everything. Um, I have a client who um, uh, shares a property and, you know, on a family compound, if you will. So there are multiple homes on the property. It's always been an abusive situation. And my Mom and dad are refusing care or refusing best practices or refusing everything, but still demanding that the adult child still be able to take care of the property and able to take care of, you know, transportation to doctors. And, and meanwhile, this caregiver is watching mom and dad fail, watching them deteriorate medically, decompensate with mental health issues. And these are incredibly challenging situations. Yeah, I mean, does it come down to a matter of, well, you know, they, they have cognitive impairments or, or mental health illness and, yes. and they're not competent, and, but yet they, they don't want to take on the role of being a, a, a conservator or, or maybe just a power of attorney? These are um, a lot of times, and it could go either way. I think that for many of the situations, you still have a parent who has untreated mental illness or even active substance abuse. We also have folks who are competent in the views of a court of law, but are making bad decisions. You know, no one 
no one says that a person who is older has to always is, is always going to make good decisions and people get to make bad lifestyle choices. They get to make bad decisions about their health care. That doesn't mean they are incompetent as people age, people over age 65 are considered a protected class citizen. So a person is needing to be evaluated, whether it's through elderly protective services or some other agency, some social agency, to determine whether or not they are at risk of self-neglect. And at that point, a judge may declare that that person is incapable of making decisions for themselves for a variety of reasons. But more often than not, we're seeing, at least in Connecticut, um, a, a much more liberal probate decision where people can make decisions with an informed risk, um, understanding that they have the right to refuse treatment. They have the right to refuse care. That doesn't necessarily mean they're incompetent, even though it comes down to self-neglect. And is that the national trend? I mean, with other states, mm-hmm. or are, are we in the minority in terms of that liberal um, I believe yeah. that is a national trend. Yeah, there are all kinds of um, efforts. There's a federal case. Um, it's referred to um, as the Sibelius case, where Medicare, uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, actually is now having home care agencies sign negotiated risk agreements. So this is definitely a federal trend where people are saying, hey, I, I – understand those risks and you know maybe it's diabetic care you know what i'm going to eat ice cream every night and i understand that that's a risk and i understand that it might kill me but i'm capable of making those decisions similarly when we have abusive situations people have the right to make bad decisions about how they react to care how they um, react to their doctor's advice whether they go to the emergency room and then sign themselves out against medical advice all of these things are possible, and they happen every day. Yeah. Wow. It's it's just. The well, don't you find? I think the way that you explained it is, as we age, some people age gracefully, and some people mm-hmm. age very reluctantly. And a lot of the things that you talked about are almost like children exerting their independence. Because I think I think we do revert back to children at some point, um, but. I think it's but about there are the many independence cultures. and right. Go ahead. I was just going to say there are many cultures that refer to it as once a man, twice a child. So absolutely, there's that kind of a um, uh, a response. Except that this person is now in an adult role, um, and the challenge is, and I think you're right with with what you just said there, that this is someone who probably hasn't lived gracefully and now we're expecting them to age gracefully is unrealistic. Um, And this is why so many, I mean, more than a quarter of caregivers, if you extrapolate from the studies of, of all caregivers are people who were abused as children or neglected because these are people who didn't cope with life well initially and are now simply aging as broken people. Mm-hmm. Is it realistic to say that if this has gone on for a period of years, um, you know, over their childhood and then into adulthood that, and I, I know that there are resources where you can kind of uh, make make peace with it, but can can mm-hmm. there be a metamorphosis with this kind of dy- dynamic or is, you just have to find ways to sort of tolerate? I mean, if oh, you were that's to a great question. It, <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a great question. And that was, you know, I was thinking as we were talking about this show, I have so much to say and we have like, you know, so little time, but you well, know, we can we always have... do another one, Pam. <laughs> Keep that in mind. <laughs> well, okay. So one of the things to answer your question is, first of all, I'm not a licensed counselor. If you are a person, if a listener is listening to this and they are in a caregiver role where they're caring for their abuser, you need to get a licensed counselor. Absolutely no hands. I mean, there is just no two ways about it. Get one. Because there are lots of reasons why people choose to stay for a caregiver who was an abuser. Um, For some, it's a sense of duty. This is part of their upbringing. You would never have an outsider come in. Maybe it's a part of their culture, whatever. It's just part of who they are as you take care of family, takes care of family. For some, they were in a caregiving role prior to this. And it's just a natural revolution, you know, or evolution of um, their personal role. A lot of times you have children who are really the caregivers for their parents. And so this really has not changed. For some, they believe maybe with a good hope, maybe with an unrealistic hope, that their parent will someday appreciate them. Um, And, again, that's why that counselor can be there to help support them, um, whether that comes to fruition or not. Some realize it may be like their last time to make peace with that parent or come to accept the, the, the fact that they never had a positive relationship with a parent. So there are lots of different individual motivations. There are as many individual family dynamics and family systems as there are individuals in those roles. So the, regardless of what motivates the caregiver, a support from a trained professional is really vital. Yeah, it, it sounds that way. With the, I mean, just in general, if there has been neglect or abuse and this person does have to take on some type of role, do they initially need to sit down and say, okay, we know we don't get along well, but I'm going to help you. And, you know, I know we'll talk about uh, how we set up boundaries and everything, mm-hmm. but should should the expectation be at some point, I want this, I want my mom or my dad to uh, be grateful or to apologize and then we can move on or it's just okay these are the things we're going to do or talk about and these are the things we're not going to I mean what should be the expectation from the the caregiver if it's been very bad but they they are somehow willing to take this on is it just like I say very it's a very yeah. emotional thing but it, it must well, be very individual It is extremely emotional, and part of it is because most um, abused people have not had the strength to confront the abuse. So, I mean, that's why these are, like I said before at the outset of the show, these are invisible victims. Um, because these are folks who haven't maybe talked about it in their families, or it might be something that everybody in the family knows but doesn't discuss. And it's very, very difficult to then, even as an adult, because your relationship with your abuser is still as a child, even though you're an adult, this is truly something that would come from a very healed person and what happens in caregiving more often than not is with each challenge each new crisis there comes a renegotiation of that role so let's say for instance you've got a adult caregiver who's caregiver for a mom who lives in an independent living but now is starting to decline because of her cognitive issues her functional impairments what have you needs more care mom freaks out mom 
is angry, mom refuses to pay for the extra care, and with each new crisis, she's going to lash out at whomever she's always lashed out, the adult daughter, the now adult daughter. So that perpetuates, and, and, and part of this is how we make meaning in any kind of human development scenario. What happens is the adult child has to now take that abuse again, renegotiate their stance. So even if they get to a point where they're feeling confident in their caregiving role, they know those limits, they've got their boundaries, you know, even if they've had that conversation with mom saying, okay, mom, here's what I'm able to do. Here's what I need you to do. With each crisis, and there are many in aging, that has to be renegotiated every single time. Most people don't do that. Most people simply go through by crisis, story by story, episode by episode. And unfortunately, there's not a whole lot that we can do other than get good support. And by getting good support, I know you had mentioned that you you run support groups. So mm-hmm. if there's somebody out there and they're on the precipice of this scenario with their parent, you're saying, you know, it, it, they should get an individual counselor, but um, what what else should they set up for themselves, knowing that there's going to be multiple crises, or or I mean, or maybe they don't anticipate this. What what typically do they think, and and then reality sets in. Can you can you talk a little bit yeah. about the other kinds of crises and kind of a timeline? Sure. Okay, so um, a couple of ways to start this. First of all, um, yes, a support group is very good, but understand that most support groups are support going forward, not therapy groups. So Mm -hmm. a therapy group is going to be much more talking about how are you as an individual dealing with this crisis for mom? A support group will really quickly burn out if it's always about Sally Sue's individual relationship with her mother and her sister, for example. One of the things that's um, also just to be aware, most support group facilitators are volunteers or are, um, I I don't want to say paraprofessionals, but they may be professionals with limited training. So I've been doing support groups for 20 years, but that doesn't mean that I'm a licensed counselor. I'm not uh, a licensed social worker. I've had tons of training. I've got tons of experience, but like I said, I'm not a counselor. So the support that you're going to get from my support group is very different than what you would get from a therapy group. So, but it is, good to have both too because they offer different kinds of support one of the things that you know caring is hard even with positive relationships when you've got a history of abuse that positive caregiver um, has to have that practical and emotional support so they need community resources they need a therapist they need an open relationship with healthcare providers because as healthcare providers we don't always know that history and I think one of the worst situations is we see this sweet little man or woman in front of us and have no idea what it was like, just see them as they are now. And we look at adult children and say, well, gee, how come this daughter doesn't come by? How come this daughter is always so guarded and angry? Um, There must be something wrong with the daughter. And that just perpetuates that kind of negative experience for the caregiver. So you need to be open with healthcare providers and let them know, and again, if you've never confronted the abuse or named it or called it what it is or reported it, that's going to be very uncomfortable for the individual. The last thing is they need really a trusted friend or a spouse or someone that they can not only to provide 
emotional strength, but to be a barometer for how it's impacting the caregiver. Um, do they have negative coping strategies? Are there, is there a decrease in their positive coping strategies? You know, maybe they used to exercise a lot, but now they're not. Um, do they have health symptoms that are impacting the caregiver? Are, are there changes in their relationships at work or at home or more signs of depression? Those are things that that a trusted friend or spouse can can really have uh, to be that barometer to say, okay, this is starting to affect you negatively. Okay. Wow. Um, is is um, it a game changer for, say there's a family with all of these issues, but yet they do not have the financial resources to seek out professional counseling or what? I know there are mm. free resources and whatnot, or say they're living in an area where, Unlike where we live, where there's many resources, what would mm-hmm. a, a family in, in that situation um, be able to do if they're not living in a, an area where they can access resources or they do not have um, financial resources to have assistance from uh, an independent living facility or right. or higher care or whatnot, which are many people um, out there today? Yeah. Uh, finances in general is one of the biggest stressors in caregiving, period. So mm-hmm. even if, and I, and I think really, if you're independently wealthy, you're probably okay, although that's a gross overgeneralization. Or if you're completely impoverished, you're probably okay because there are lots of free resources. It's the rest of us in the <laughs> middle who kind of you know, take a hit on this because you have some resources, but you're not going to qualify. And so then you have to prioritize, okay, do I pay for my kid's fencing class or soccer or do mm-hmm. I pay for the counseling that I need? And those are tough, tough, tough conversations. Um, I think that, you know, I, I have so many people who have resources, and it's still just so hard to accept the help, um, even though they need it so desperately and even though they can verbalize that. But being ready to accept support and help is very different. But let's say that someone is willing to accept it. There are resources through the Alzheimer's Association, through the Arthritis Foundation, through the uh, National Alliance for Mental Illness, NAMI, N-A-M-I, there are mm-hmm. all kinds of resources. Um, most states now have an info line kind of program through 211. So a right. lot of support can be found through those resources. So they can go on infoline.org or they can go to 211.org and they can get resources that are in their communities or are available um, online. I will um, caution people that online therapy is not legal in most states. Just because a licensure for a qualified therapist is usually a state um, uh, boundary kind of limitation. So I'm only, you know, if I'm, a, if I'm a licensed therapist, I'm only licensed in this state or that state where I apply for licensure. That prohibits me from providing therapy outside of those state boundaries. So just be cautious. And I, I don't know all of the resources that are available online now, but be cautious that you're getting someone not only who is licensed to practice therapy, but is also has experience of success with your kinds of needs. So if you've got someone who's a parent who's a substance abuser, that's very different than someone who was a physical abuser um, and has Alzheimer's. Yeah. So you need to... to 
to choose resources that are going to meet your personal situation. Very, yeah, very good advice. Um, can, uh, what about the, I don't know if any, any entity has ever thought about this, but in terms of um, caretaking itself, the role of that, there is mm-hmm. no, no uh, except unless you're in a skilled nursing facility or something, there's no compensation for that, and it is very expensive. Has any, yeah. to your knowledge, has any state ever thought of creating legislation for those situations in which, in which people find themselves, if it's a, a distant relative or a friend or mm-hmm. a whomever, and there are so many, um, you know, financial things associated with it, but yet yeah. it, you can't, can you claim that on your taxes? Yeah. Or do, do they have to become a dependent or what? It's great questions and differs state by state. So check with your own experts. I do recommend that everybody see a specific elder law attorney. So mm-hmm. one of the um, best resources that I've come to know in the last couple of years is called superlawyers.com. Super lawyers are the lawyers that recommend other lawyers. So these are the ones that by peer recommendation, this is who my personal lawyer would go to for this kind of advice, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So look specifically for elder law, or if you go to your own state bar association online, you can find out who's certified in elder law or who's practiced in elder law. Um, And most attorneys will tell you, you know, gee, I only do closings and a little bit of probate. That's not elder law. Um, So one of the things that you need to look at is that, yes, there are some state programs, and again, it varies state by state, which will allow compensation for caregiving. It depends on the program, and it depends on the kind of caregiving. In Connecticut, they will allow some dependent care for um, a, a, a parent, but not if they're on other kinds of home care programs, or they'll allow compensation for the caregiver as long as it's not Alzheimer's care or you know there are different kinds of rules there are different programs that are coming out now where they will allow uh, reimbursement through a state program for a, for care for private caregiving except if it's a family member so there are all these different kinds of rules what I really caution families about is make sure that whenever you are doing caregiving and mixing bank accounts keep receipts for everything what you may not do is simply assume well i'm the caregiver so my mom can pay for this i'll just use her money and i'll just use this and i've put in all of these hours when the state goes back to do a look back and again every state is different i know in connecticut we look back five years even if it's for home care in massachusetts they only look back five years if it's for a nursing home application Mm-hmm. And, and again, I'm not a lawyer, so you know I could just be misquoting what I just heard from an elder lawyer. The dependent deductions, I know that there are some rules that you are allowed to deduct if you have paid for care. So if you are paying for your mom's assisted living or if you are paying for dad's nursing home, yes, that can be deducted from your taxes. But again, you want to talk with a qualified tax professional because that's an overgeneralization as well. So you want to keep good receipts and talk to licensed professionals um, who are experienced with elder care rules. And besides, with all of these new tax codes, everything may change tomorrow. (laughs) Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) 
I'm holding off. I'm trying to decide if I need to itemize everything like I usually do. I know. Anyway, I, know. I don't know. <laughs> we, we will we will see how that scenario changes uh, very soon, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, yeah, I think that's that that's great great advice. Um, just so that people are aware, are in. I know this maybe is a little bit into the realm of elder law, but for this is sort of general. Can you tell people? Um, who are listening? The difference between a power of uh, of attorney versus a conservator versus sure. a guardian. Yep. So in most states, um, a power of attorney is a document that can be assigned and revoked. So if, for instance, I appoint you, Donna, as my power of attorney, in that paperwork, I am giving you authority to act on my behalf in specific areas that I designate. So, for instance, I'll give you power of attorney to sign the paperwork for my closing on my new house. I'll give you power of attorney to sign uh, legal documents about my children if I should, you know, die. I'll give you power of attorney to handle my chattel. I always giggle that chattel is on that whole list. I'm not even sure what chattel is, but, you know, your goods, your services, et cetera. So you Mm -hmm. assign all of that, and you can also give a power of attorney for health care decision-making. Now, most times, durable is now what we call that. It's a durable power of attorney, which means different things in different states. In some areas, it means durable, meaning including across state lines, but more often durable now means even at the point where I'm no longer capable of making decisions. Back... um, maybe 20 years ago, once you were no longer competent, your durable power of attorney kind of was no longer in effect. That person no longer, right, no longer uh, capable of, of, of taking it away. So a power of attorney can be revoked by the um, giver of the power of attorney at any time. So let's say I'm my mom's power of attorney, and this is a terrible example because my mother and I do not have an uh, abusive relationship. So if she's listening, I don't mean (laughs) that she was my abuser. But if she was, let's say Mm -hmm. my mother gives me power of attorney, but because of our history of abusive relationship, when I go and make a decision that she doesn't like, she revokes that power of attorney. Now I have no legal authority, but in 28 states, I have what they call a filial responsibility. And there are laws in 28 states that say that there is a filial responsibility law where I now have the responsibility to be um, making arrangements for good health care. Now, I will tell you that of those 28 states, 11 have never used them. And in all of those, there are exceptions for someone who is a victim of abuse or neglect or if the child would be impoverished by providing that care. So, is that more of a moral? A moral? Um, it is. That's what I'm thinking when you're saying that. It's like mm-hmm. you know, morally, this is a moral responsibility. Is that what that? Right. Or children is? who simply abandon their their frail, dependent parents. Um, and and like I said, eleven of the twenty eight have never used them. But you need to consider that power of attorney legally and the consequences of that if it is revoked. Now, that's different than a conservator. A conservator is legally appointed by a probate court. A conservator has authority and responsibility. And in um, the conservatorship um, rules, 
um, there are two different kinds. There's conservator of person and conservator of estate. So conservator of person makes all of the decisions about that person's well-being and um, their care needs. Conservator of estate, and it can be pronounced either way, conservator or conservator. Conservator. Um, mm-hmm. Both are legally acceptable. Um, of estate deals with all of the finances. In mm-hmm. many states, the person who they appoint is then concerned, considered a guardian. Now, in Connecticut, for example, the court will also provide or appoint a guardian ad litem. Now, the guardian ad litem is a person who is a representative of the conserved, of the patient, where they are supposed to be an impartial person who watches out for the well-being on the court's behalf and reports to the court. So they're not responsible for the care decisions, but they report back to the court. So when the court has a a follow-up um, annual kind of review. The conservator person goes in and says, here's the care that mom's getting. She still hates it, but she's being cared for. The guardian ad litem comes in and says, yep, Mrs. Smith really hates it, but she is getting the care and she's accepting of the services, and I think that the conservatorship should continue. And and so there are multiple roles here. And again, I'm I'm certainly not a legal expert. This is just... Uh, my experience based on almost 30 years of, of this kind of elder care work and care management. Um, and again, state by state, there are differences. Yeah. Well, I just think it's sort of the basic um, information in geriatrics that people should have a little bit of an understanding of the differences so that they mm-hmm. can check things out in terms of what they need to do, right? Yeah, um, exactly. For their situation. But um with Rick, and we have about 21 minutes or so remaining, just to give you a time check. And um, yeah. we um, let's get into a little bit about um, some of the content in terms of tips tips for for setting up uh, boundaries between mm-hmm. the the child and the and the adult that they are they are taking care of um, when when it is not a good relationship. Right. I think that first we need to look at um, why, because I think that um, for a lot of us, we get to that point where we're thinking, okay, well, I'm just, I'm a caregiver and this is what I have to do and I have to do it because um, I I won't be able to sleep at, at night if I don't do this or whatever the motivation internally, personally is for each of us as individuals. The, the big why is perpetuating the risk of abuse cycle. And one of the biggest risk factors for elder abuse is a stressed caregiver. And there is no greater stress than caring for an abuser. So I think that we need to look at, first of all, the fact that if you are caring for your abuser, you are at increased risk for stress, depression, um, and serious depression. And you need to look at the impact not only on you, but on the rest of your family, especially your children, if you have children. And we need to look at and recognize and acknowledge that risk and then watch for those signs and symptoms. Um, Having said that, now let's talk about how to set those boundaries because that is really important. One of the things that um, the experts tell us is that ultimately the boundaries are important because we need to be able to detach with love. And this is not necessarily love for your parent, but love for yourself. Um, 
you have to give up the notion that your actions and efforts can control that person's behaviors. There is nothing that you can do or say in a better way that's going to make the parent or spouse or whoever the abuser is behave differently. And I say that knowing that in all of my work, I talk about approach matters and that we as caregivers can sometimes trigger reactions. That's different than that. That's, you know, gee, if I ignore my mother banging on the table, she'll just stop versus now she's agitated from being ignored. That's very different than triggering a behavior that results in abuse or thinking that if I just do something the right way, mom will love me mm-hmm. or accept me or whatever. I know. So it is, it's hard, but if we can do this, it helps you as a, as a person stop allowing them to control your emotional reaction, and it gives you control. Right. That's hard. But that's and is finding the, the right approach trial and error, or do, do you kind of know intuitively from dealing with them all these years that, well, that approach isn't going to work? So, um, you know. There are some approaches that we know will work better. So um, there's a really good book called, for Alzheimer's caregivers called Learning to Speak Alzheimer's. And it really does talk about what are the things that we need to look at. Um, I, I, I work with experts and, and trained in the habilitation model. And we consider this a treatment for Alzheimer's. It's not a medication, but it looks at everything, our approach, our communication, the environment. You know, if, if there are too many reflective surfaces, someone with Alzheimer's is going to misinterpret that, um, whether it's lights and now they think that there are police here or they look at themselves in a mirror and don't recognize themselves and think that there's an old man in my apartment. You know, mm-hmm. there are things that we can look at in approach that are going to minimize negative behaviors or negative expressions. Um, that's, to me, is something that we can teach, something that we can learn. And, and, and again, talking to the Alzheimer's Association, going to a, a, a facility near you that offers free seminars, and we all do, um, that can teach you these kinds of things. But that is different than um, having, you know, gee, if I just respond to dad's call at 2 o'clock in the morning, then he'll know that he can rely on me, especially if dad has always been abusive, that's not going to improve with the challenges of aging. So you have to practice an intellectual detachment before you can truly have an authentic detachment with love. And that is something that, unfortunately, caregiving gives us lots of opportunities to practice, but it is hard Mm -hmm. work. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, all those things you're thinking. Well, if I just do this, they will. That's rational, but the, but mm-hmm. the, the what's going on, you know, it isn't because you're not going to get the response that you you think you need or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's it's got to it's got to be very very hard. Um, so so that, that that's good. Go ahead. Keep, keep yeah, going what I was going to say though is like. then our next step in this is choosing yep. and affirming. To, to love the toxic person without tolerating being treated with cruelty or disrespect. And again, there are lots of opportunities to practice this as well. So how do you do that? Well, you have to understand that there are limits to what you can provide. You may be able to provide the overall supervision, but then 
arrange for alternatives to you providing the care. So mm-hmm. maybe that means a home health aide or a senior adult day program or some respite care for a short-term stay so that you can get a break. But then you don't waver. You have to set and keep those boundaries. You're the only one who can control that, bound, that border wall. You're the only one who can say, oh, I'll just, it, it's better for me if I answer this call now. Um, uh, she'll just keep calling me. You know what? If you're going to waver on that, then, yes, that person is learning. That we're conditioning them to say, yeah, I can push those buttons because I can wait until after midnight to call. Yeah, um, or I can well, wait until I'm so incredibly sick, even though they told me to go to the doctor, I'll take you to the doctor, I'll call in a, a service to bring you to the doctor, let's get to the doctor, and I'm going to wait until, you know, uh, Sunday, Christmas Eve, in order to go to the emergency room. Wow. Um, yeah, so you have to learn to not let them push your buttons, but to kind of arrange arrange the situation that gives them the care, but also makes you, right. you love yourself is what you're saying, right? Well, Take and it's really yourself. a protection. I mean, think of it as a border wall. That border is there to create a protective demarcation between me and the caregiver, the abuser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is because it can just end up, you can end up spiraling out of control and end up very yep. sick yourself and, and not be able to do anything, correct? Exactly. Um, so two things that are popping into my mind to say, first of all, the symptoms of depression, I want to get back to that. But let's talk okay. about care management. Because like I just said, and especially since we've got Christmas around the corner, um, and it is on a Sunday, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday. So let's say I've got a parent who I keep saying, gee, mom, it sounds like your, your COPD is getting worse. Um, you really need to go to the doctor, have them listen to your lungs, update your meds, get your flu shot, blah, blah, blah. And mom refuses, refuses, refuses. You can take care of me. They're just going to put me on more oxygen. I don't want to go there. There are all kinds of sick people there, whatever, all of these myriad of excuses. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to wait until Christmas Eve. You don't have to go to the emergency room. First of all, there are doctors and nurses there to take care of that individual. Second of all, then you feel guilt, right? And then your mm-hmm. family says, how can you just leave your mother on Christmas Eve to go to the emergency room by yourself? You have to protect yourself because a lot of cruel judgments can be made from well-intentioned and unaware health providers, other relatives, the, the spouse of your parent, you know, all kinds of different um, sources. But more importantly, if you call and arrange for a care manager first, the care manager is the one who is the person who's responsible for overseeing the coordination of care that your parent needs. Even if it's Christmas Eve, they can do it, Correct. They're going to get paid through the nose for it, but it's worth every penny. Mm -hmm. Now, in Connecticut and in many other states, we have home care programs for seniors. So in Connecticut, there is a care management program that comes with the home care program for elders. And again, state by state, I'm sure these programs exist in most other states. So that the care managers are on call. They're getting paid anyway. The care manager can coordinate that. And they'll say, okay, I'll call the home care agency. We'll get the home care out there in the morning. Thank you very much for the update. And and then call you and just let you know what's happening. 
one of the challenges with that is that families who have built the border and built and 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 don't waver in those boundaries then have to make a distinction between reporting and problem solving. So let's say let's say mom's in a nursing home even and she gets in a fight with the roommate or she's oh I had a client once whose father was having sex with another resident. Oh Lord. and the facility has to call the next of kin and the attorney, whatever, the conservator. They mm-hmm. simply have to call to report. That doesn't mean you have to solve the problem. I had a family member when I had to make the phone call and report, you know, the, the incident. Um, she said, well, the last thing I want is to be my father's sex police. Now, she never told me the history with her father. I don't know if he was an abusive person to her or if he simply cheated on mom all those years. I don't know. All I know is that I have to report it to the next of kin in this particular case. But I can then say, in the future, do you want me to not notify you of these incidents? Mm -hmm. And she can say yes. So it's important, again, to have open communications with those health providers. I'm not asking her to solve the problem of dad having sex. That's my responsibility. If, if, if If dad's in a nursing home... The nursing home is responsible for his well-being. They do have to, however, keep the family informed. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean the family if, has to problem solve. If it were abusive where dad, you know, attacked another person sexually, then you'd, you'd have to get the police involved, correct? Correct. Or Sometimes. No. Right? Um, it depends on the intent. So if this is a person where um, dad um, has dementia and, you know, then all of those, definitions are are gray you know we've had situations where two seniors with dementia seek each other out and are kissing you know that's not rape but it is something that we have to report it's sexually expressive behavior Mm -hmm. um you know we don't call the cops on those kinds of incidents but yes if if someone is assaulted in a nursing home if they are sexually abused in a nursing home we do have to assess evaluate and in some cases involve the police, um, you know, especially if there was an intent to harm. So each of those is a case-by-case basis. But again, the family is not responsible for making decisions about what to do with that person. That is the responsibility of the nursing home. Right. And then once you report, if it's relatively innocuous uh, and you tell the, the daughter or the son, then do they feel like they need to follow up in some manner or it still rests in your purview? Oh, no, it's still the nursing home's purview. Um, The family, now, and there's differences between assisted living and nursing homes. So in assisted living, these are are, um, places where they may or may not be able to handle the, the level of care that needs to be provided. There's nothing more advanced than a nursing home. So if a person is in a nursing home, that's really all that they have to handle. They have to handle everything. If the person is in an assisted living, the family may need to get more involved because then at that point, the assisted living may be saying, and we can't take care of dad here anymore. You need to find a new place for him. You need to find skilled care level up. Yep. Wow. Yeah. However, the family who has been abused still has options. 
because now what they can do is they can go and apply for conservatorship and say to the court, you need to find someone else to take care of him. I've been abused. This is a financial hardship for me, an emotional hardship for me. I cannot do this anymore. That is clearly not capable of making his own decisions. He needs an objective person who can be his advocate. I can't do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But people also need to be aware of that because I've had – clients where I live now, I mean, excuse me, where I work now with uh, services for the blind that are in um, assisted living and nursing homes, and you do um, apply for a conservator, and typically if if they have no family, many of them don't, very elderly people that we see, Mm -hmm. um, the conservators are typically, you know, maybe an attorney they assign, or if they're lucky, an RN or somebody, but there is not a, a list sitting on the table, oh, yeah, we can just call up this person, and they may check in, you know, like once a month or something, and they it's not like they're getting rich. They get paid very little in terms of, oh, of their course. monetization of this person, yeah. correct? Correct. It's not correct. a lot of hands-on, in my experience, because I've done a no. lot of the case management with these clients that have no yep. supports at all. And yeah. um, so it's not like, oh, well, I found this, I found this nurse or this social worker, and they're going to do everything. Right. It's not the right. Case. This is not renting a dutiful daughter. This is right. I have a worst case scenario. I cannot do it for the preservation of myself and my family. I'm setting these boundaries really strong, and here's why: a person would have to explain to the court my history, um, and most often the. Um, applicant will be in the same room with the person, their abuser, if you will, um, when that, because the, um, um, the conservee, I don't remember the legal term, <laughs> now you're seeing the fact that, yes, I need more coffee and I'm not a legal person, um, <laughs> your parent would be in that probate process as well. In fact, um, a lot of probate places will, a lot of probate judges will now go to wherever it is that the applicant um, is. So if your family member is in a nursing home or an assisted living, probate will hold a hearing in that, in their building. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that, that, that your parent can participate. So that means you're going to have to confront your abuser with the judge. So again, these are never easy scenarios, but there are options yeah. and support. Yes, definitely. Um, can we touch upon, because um, we only have five minutes left, and I'd like to encourage us to do wow. maybe a follow-up um, in the new year, if you're willing. Of course, of course. Setting setting and achieving goals for uh, caregiver wellness with regard to yes. uh, uh, expounding upon what we've, we've built this foundation. Yep. So, um, yes, definitely we can we can go more in depth than this in the future. Um, Caregiver wellness, I think one of the most important things that we have to talk about are those signs of depression. Um, The research study that was done by Kong and Moore in 2015, it was published in the Gerontologist. It's called Caring for My Abuser. And I know it's online. People can at least see the abstract. I'm a uh, uh, I, I'm a subscriber to the gerontologist, so I don't know if it was just that I had access to the full article or if everybody has access to the full article. I don't know. But that mm-hmm. research, um, one of the things that it showed us is that people who were abused or neglected, and actually the people who were neglected are at higher risk um, or showed higher risk of more severe depression. So 
all caregivers are at risk for depression. All caregivers feel burden and, and have signs and symptoms of depression. Many of them need treatment for depression. But people who were abused and neglected at are, are even higher risk for more severe outcomes. Some of the symptoms I just wanted to share, a lack of appetite, trouble concentrating, sadness, lethargy. Again, all caregivers may identify with that, but abused caregivers um, are, are more likely to see that. Those are symptoms that need treatment. Now, treatment doesn't always have to be pills, but these become chemical changes in your body. If, if these symptoms led to diabetes, you would take treatment for it. So it doesn't lead to diabetes. It leads to depression. People need treatment for those chemical changes. So more often than not, I do recommend that my depressed caregivers ask their physicians not only about integrative health, you know, massage, therapy, uh, Reiki, whatever, but also an antidepressant because depression can be very hard to beat without medication. And it takes a lot of effort. If you're a caregiver, you may not have the fortitude to do all that you need to do for your person you're caring for and for yourself. So take the help that you can get. Um, but wellness comes in many forms um, and personal knowledge is another way that we can improve our awareness and our, our, our strength and fortitude to keep going. Um, I think I told you as we were prepping for the show, one of the great resources is a book that was written by Jacqueline Marcel. Did I tell you about that one? Yeah, um, yeah. Yep. You, you have you have two references here, I believe. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the second one. Elder Rage. Yes, Elder Rage or Take My Father, Please. Or take or the take name my of the father, book. please. Like Rodney Dangerfield, kind of a a phrase exactly. there. <laughs> exactly. Not right. my favorite title, and no. some of the chapters are are really edgy. Um, but I'm going to tell you that when I've had family members where parents were abusive, they have said that this book was their lifesaver. Okay, so it's Jacqueline Marcel, from, uh, and it's published in 2001, Elder Rage or Taking, Take My Father, Please. Uh, right. and, and I should is- say, she is not a dementia expert. She is actually in media. Um, so she was a reporter who had a personal family experience. And I'm always concerned when non-clinical or non, yep. non-professional folks write books. But this one is one of the few out there that addresses this subject. Wow. And it's relatively that's, well done. That's good. And the other one was taking care of parents who, who, didn't, take, uh, who didn't take care of you by Eleanor, is it Kate? Yes. Was, yes. Yep. And these are resources that can help folks at least understand, first of all, that they're not alone. There are thousands, millions of people. So there are an estimated 15 million Americans who are caregivers uh, for people with Alzheimer's in the U.S. Mm -hmm. That's just Alzheimer's caregivers. So if 28% of them are people who were abused, we're talking about millions. You are not alone. Holy cow. Well, on that, on that um, incredible note, (laughs) 
we are going to have to end, end this very um, informational uh, packed hour, Pam, and we I thank you so much for imparting this. Um, My I, pleasure. You know, hopefully we can do a, a second one, get back in touch with me, and after the beginning of the year we can do something maybe if you can fit it in in the spring or whatnot or later into the Definitely. winter. Definitely. And um, I'm, we're going to pass this around, and I encourage you to, to as well because it's such valuable information. Delilah, would you like to have some parting words before we depart? Of course. <laughs> you know I can't Good. be quiet. Well, I just <laughs> wanted to bring this subject up, and I know we don't have time to even That's touch okay. on it. However, maybe the next time Pam comes back, it's the is the caregivers who work for the facilities that we put our loved ones into. Um, they, you know, direct service providers don't get paid enough in this world ever. And, you know, a lot of that is controlled by funding through Medicaid and other sources, but, and, and it's not the fault of the individual assisted living places or agencies such as that. It's, it's controlled by our government. Um, mm-hmm. You know, however we can make it better, it, it's very, very important. And not only just for the the elderly, but for develop, developmentally disabled um, adults mm-hmm. who are aging as well, which ha- is another population that has another set of, of circumstances that needs to be addressed. And, you know, we often forget about um, the men and women who who take care of our loved ones on a daily basis and it's hard work it's not easy by any means but yet they get paid less than someone who flips hamburgers at a fast food joint so Mm -hmm. i i encourage everyone to look into the situation in your state and do what you can to make it better for these people i I personally, my daughter is a caregiver at an assisted living facility, and I also have another client, is which is a nonprofit for disabled adults. So, um, I, I know the struggle, and it, it takes a very loving and caring person to do the job, and they they deserve to make a living wage. They Amen. absolutely do. They absolutely do. It's it's all out of proportion, you know. The, the, the sports figures and everything, we we need to get these people more financially secure because they, they give so much. And I've seen it for years and many, you know, when I've worked in geriatrics and with developmentally disabled. So thank you. Thank you so much for adding that dimension. Maybe we can touch upon that and we will schedule another show. So everyone, please um, take um, advantage of this hour and circulate it. Pam, thank you so much. I wish you happy holidays, and I know you're always there helping to improve the quality of life of our seniors. So um, thank you again, thank you. and we'll be in touch soon. Okay? Thank you. All right. You, you take care and get that cup of coffee now. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great holiday to everybody. Okay, you too. Thank you, Delilah. Um, that's it. And so the next episode of Shattered Life Radio, everyone. Have a good weekend.